Folks, if you have that passage open before you, Jeremiah 35, um, I'm going to guess that most of you aren't very familiar with that story uh, of the Rechabites. Um, I'll tell you a couple of things before we start. It's very simple, this story, so we're not going to be, work, we're not going to be struggling too hard to understand it. And because it's quite short and simple, so will I be. How does that sound? Um, nobody, nobody's objecting. I, I don't see anybody um, putting their hand up and, and objecting. There's a, an interesting and I think quite a disconcerting phenomenon once you, you recognize it that's experienced by a lot of us when we join the Christian community. And those of us like me who grew up in Christian households and in the Christian community aren't always aware of it. And it takes usually the arrival of a newcomer to flag it up for us. I remember one time reading about a young man who'd dramatically been converted, come to faith in Jesus Christ, and couldn't wait to get to church because he knew that was the place where they'd be plotting Satan's downfall, where they'd be calling down the fire from heaven. It was just going to be the most exciting experience of his life to get to be with God's people in church, into the spiritual battle. Imagine his surprise then when he meets a nice, polite, comfortable, complacent community who were slowly going to set about domesticating him to their standard of not expecting too much from God. This is what happens all too often in the Christian community. We gather together supposedly to build one another up. And you'd think, therefore, the more of us there are, the bigger the crowd, the more we'd be encouraging each other to live well for the living God, to be dynamic followers of Jesus Christ. We end up doing something different, don't we? We end up often persuading each other why we couldn't possibly live as dynamically as God calls us to. You see it in your home group Bible study, where you see a command of Scripture, quite clear and true, it just stands there, and then we take 15 minutes to discuss why it couldn't really mean that, and we couldn't possibly live like that. Not in 2013. That was for then, not today. We convince each other that we couldn't possibly be distinctive in the way that God's people are called to be. That was all right for a simple uh, primeval society, but not for today. It's very complex. There's lots of complex decisions to be made. Um, it's, it's not that easy to, to be different from the people around us today. So in the end, the bigger the crowd gets and the more we're together in this mode we, we talk ourselves out of living seriously for God. We're not trying to obey what God says about how we use our time, our money, or about how, whom we love and how we love them. And we find ourselves much the same as our neighbors who don't know Jesus Christ at all. There, there are a couple of differences. We do stuff like this on a Sunday, and we drop our kids off at BB and GB. Take that away, and hey... What, what's different? The crowd leads us, and we follow the crowd. 
And we assume that because everyone else is doing it, whatever it is, that must be a good thing. And we couldn't possibly not be a part of it. Jeremiah is leading a culture just like ours, and he knows how to lead very courageously, even in the face of this this pervasive, we couldn't possibly be the people of God, we couldn't possibly obey. He's a strong leader. As Peterson puts it, Jeremiah didn't commission a public opinion survey to find out what the Jerusalem crowds wanted to hear about God. He didn't ask for a show of hands to determine what level of moral behavior would be acceptable to the people. So to a people who were simply resigned to their disobedience, who had no desire to be distinctive for God, he challenges them, and he calls them back to their birthright. And I think he does it in a very intriguing way here in chapter 35. So one day, a strange... Have the passage open before you can skim and see... Uh, see what, what I'm saying here. But one day, anyway, a strange bunch of people arrived in Jerusalem. They were called Rechabites. They're, they're nomads who live in tents, and actually they're a guild of metal workers. Uh, they make chariots and weaponry. So they, they basically roamed around the countryside, setting up camp in this village or beside that city. And if you had a javelin that had shattered and you needed it reforged, you'd wait till next time the Rechabites showed up and you'd get your javelin fixed. Or if you had a buckle in your chariot wheel, you'd set it to the side. Next time the Rechabites are in town, they straighten it out for you. So they're a small band who keep very much to themselves. We know when we research them a wee bit that they could trace their ancestry about 250 years to Jonadab ben Rechab, who was around at the time of King Jehu. In verses 8 to 10, they tell us a little bit. They tell us about their forefather, Jonadab. They say in verses 8 to 10, We've obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons or daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We've lived in tents and have faithfully obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab commanded us. So there's three things there. They don't drink alcohol, they don't tend their own crops, and they're nomadic. They don't have homes, they're on the move. That might all seem quite random, but it's not. None of it's random. It's all very very clear when we begin to, to think a little bit about who they are. One commentator explains it like this. Craftsmen in metal have many trade secrets which they would have held on to tightly. Maybe they're abstaining from alcohol because they wanted to be tight-lipped about their secrets, and they also wanted to keep their wits about them for their dangerous work. Then the not building of houses, remember they're nomadic. They need to be on the road, and they need to be free to be on the road if they want to do the work uh, that they do. And then the thing about not raising crops... Because metallurgy was such a specialism, it required great skill and practice, there's no time for these folks to get sidetracked into anything else uh, like tending crops. So what's happened for the Rechabites? Well, because of the Babylonian invasion, it's not really safe to be out and about anymore. You don't want to be 
camping outside one of the small villages or cities. You want to consolidate into the strongholds. So they end up within Jerusalem's city walls for safety. And there must have been a real oddity in the city. These country nomadic folk arriving in with the urban elite. And I'm sure people were noticing them, staring at them as they went up the street, talking about them. Within two or three days, everyone in Jerusalem would have had a good look at the Rechabites and seen them and worked out who they were. Now notice how Jeremiah draws them into his prophetic ministry in verse 1. This is the word of, that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. The Lord's commanding Jeremiah to give the Rechabites a good bottle of Chardonnay. But they don't drink wine. What's the point? Why invite them to a wine party that they can't enjoy? And then it, then it dawned on Jeremiah. God's, God's wanting to communicate something. He wants to make a point here. The Rechabites, it turns out, were living evidence right in these crowded streets of Jerusalem of the two things that people in Jerusalem don't believe anymore. They don't believe that you can be obedient. They just don't think it's possible. And they don't think you can be distinctive. That is, be different than the people around you. People had already noticed the Rechabites. Um, You couldn't miss them. And Jeremiah now was going to try and make them notice the right thing about the Rechabites. What was the profound thing that set this community apart? What was it that gave them their identity? And his hope was that the people watching the Rechabites could see that they too could be obedient and could be distinctive people too. So Jeremiah uh, saw the possibilities and he set to work. He uses a public room in the temple, okay? This isn't, this isn't a wee room tucked away in behind that door, for example. He's probably used a space something like this uh, where everybody can see it. The religious leaders in Jerusalem can see it and the, the watching community can see it. Sets the big table, invites the Rechabites to sit, and if there's one thing on the table that you'd notice immediately, it's the wine, the abundance of wine. Jeremiah's done this before, hasn't he? We've we've noticed this. These dramatic ways in which he acts out things to drive home his point. In chapter 13, it's one of my favorite news stories that I've learned on our way through Jeremiah. It's the one of, I call it the moldy boxer shorts, because that's the way it reads to me. It's about a linen cloth that Jeremiah was supposed to wear. It was supposed to somehow show God's glory um, to the people in Jerusalem. But then God tells him, Jeremiah, take that off and go and bury it. And it, it, as it would, if you bury something in the ground, it gets damp and moldy. And God says, you know, that, that's useless. That's become entirely useless. Tell the people this. Just like that beautiful garment that I wanted uh, you to wear, I wanted to wear them. I wanted to display my glory to the world through them. But now they're just like that moldy garment lying in the ground. They're fit for nothing and they're useless. 
quite dramatic and powerful. There's another one in chapter 27, um, and I think this one would have been quite, quite a, a spectacle. God asked him to walk through the streets of Jerusalem wearing an ox's yoke. So that's a big, massive wooden structure over his shoulders. And he was to walk through the streets of Jerusalem wearing this. And it was God's way of telling the people, you're going to be yoked just like an ox. You're going to be slaves under the approaching Babylonian rule. And do you know what God's message to them was? It was, a, it was a hard message. He was telling them, he didn't say, you know, I'm going to shatter the yoke. I'm going to split, crack it. You know, there was no, none of that going on. God was saying, get used to wearing that yoke because it's better than being killed. So these are the kind of very dramatic, powerful, and profound things that God had asked Jeremiah to act out. But on this occasion, Jeremiah is not really the chief player. He's He's more like the director of the play, and it's the Rechabites that are center stage. He has them at the table, the wine's in front of them, and Jeremiah says, cheers, fellas, enjoy. They don't. They don't drink. And Jeremiah knew they wouldn't. They say in verse 5, we will drink no wine For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine. You see, the Rechabites lived life not on the basis of what anybody else was doing. Didn't care. We're Rechabites. We know what Jonadab said 250 years ago, and we're going to do it. Doesn't matter what anybody else is doing or how many other people are doing it. Our father, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, commanded us, you shall not drink wine. For them, it was the ancient command and not the current headline that gave them their identity. Now, now think about it for a second. All of that was fine. Maybe for 250 years, the environment was conducive to keeping the command. They were living their nomadic lifestyle. They were getting on with the metallurgy. Um, it all made sense. It doesn't make sense anymore. They're in Jerusalem now. The context changed. Jeremiah's shown them a lot of hospitality. Surely you can let the old rules slide a bit. Not the Rechabites. Jonadab told us 250 years ago not to drink wine, so we're not going to do it. We know how to obey a command. Well, I've observed the drama. Uh, I've just talked you through it very briefly. And now, very quickly, Jeremiah's sermon. He turns to the watching audience, and the audience, by the way, is the religious leadership of Judah and the people themselves. And he says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go and tell the people of Judah... And the people of Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words? Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine. And this command has been kept. To this day, they don't drink wine because they obey their forefathers' command. But I have spoken to you again and again. 
yet you have not obeyed me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefathers gave, but these people have not obeyed me. Notice very quickly what Jeremiah didn't say. He didn't say, um, you've got to do what the Rechabites did. You've got to sell your homes, live in tents, uh, give up your vineyards, roam in the desert. You've got to give up wine and be teetotal. That's not what he was talking about. It wasn't the specifics of the Rechabite way of life that he was holding up for the people. It It was their obedience. It was their distinctiveness. Again, Eugene Peterson, he distills the essence of Jeremiah's message like this. He says, you also have a father who has commanded you to live in total relationship to him. You know that he set you apart for a life of love. Why don't you live in response to it? If you think it's because ordinary mortal human beings can't do it, think again. The Rechabites are ordinary mortal human beings. And they have been doing it for 250 years. You also have a way of life that makes you distinctive. It's a way of life that involves making decisions about, about the way in which you live. It's about regular worship. It's about faithful prayer, tithing, caring for the poor, moral conduct, and the pursuit of righteousness. Now, why don't you do it? If you think that this life, this distinctive life, is too rigorous... For ordinary mortal human beings, think again. The Rechabites are ordinary mortal human beings, and they have been doing it for 250 years. Do you see how simple this this passage is? Peterson imagines Jeremiah saying something like this, don't just look at them. Don't just talk about them. Pay attention to what's distinctive about them. They're not entertainment They're an example. Now, that's really interesting. Entertainment is not what we do with faithful religious people. We turn them into entertainment. Just to check if that's right or not, a flicked-up eye player. And what's on there? How to get to heaven with the Hutterites. Now, cast your mind back to the listings the last two or three years. How many shows have there been on about the Amish or about some other intentional religious community. We've become fascinated with them. They're like a sideshow. People who actually believe in a real way of life predicated by their religious conviction. It's become entertainment. And actually, I think we do that with people in our churches too. If there's somebody in our church who's making real decisions about how they bring up their children or about how they spend their time or their money to do with honoring God, we sort of gently sideline them as a curiosity. He's a bit of a keener. You know, we don't all have to be like that. We make them into a curiosity. But Jeremiah is saying they're they're not entertainment, they're an example Back to Peterson. He says Jeremiah is asking the people to look at the Rechabites and let them show you how badly and how boringly you live and how well you can live. 
Your problem is not that you're incapable, but that you're lazy. There's not a single person in Jerusalem who's not up to living consciously and deliberately as a child of God. But you've let the crowd turn you into spectators and consumers. You've let yourselves become flabby and indulgent. You've ignored the best things that have ever been said to you. God's word. And you've let the chatter and the gossip of the crowd fill your ears. Why will you not let God's command develop in you a life of holy obedience instead of letting the crowd drag you into sloppiness and laziness? The defendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command that their forefather gave them, but these people have not obeyed me. Obedience is possible, and so is distinctiveness. That's the message, the simple, unavoidable message of this chapter of God's Word. But there's one place we'll not find it, and it's with the crowd. The larger the crowd that we're a part of, the smaller our lives will become. Came across this line this week, and I just thought it was really funny. Um, Pliny the Elder apparently said about the Romans, when they couldn't make a building beautiful, they made it big. I loved that. Because that's how life works. We, when we lose, when we lose the beauty of the simple daily acts of obedience and honoring God, we start to build up a paraphernalia. That practice, I think, that practice of the Romans, when you can't make it beautiful, you make it big. That's what we are prone to today. We add pounds to our incomes. We add rooms to our houses. We add activities to our schedules, appointments to our calendars. And every, every time we add something, the quality of our lives diminishes. On the other hand, every time we retrieve a part of our lives back, when we take them back from the crowd, back from the way everybody else lives, and when we obey God instead, that's when our lives begin to grow again. We rediscover ourselves and our freedom in God. I wonder this evening, um, folks, whether we believe that. I started by talking about that dynamic in our churches where we talk ourselves out of obedience, where we talk ourselves out of the distinctiveness that God's called us to. Here, this evening, Jeremiah 35, God's word says, you can obey. You can be distinctive. It is possible. Remember the Rechabites. Let me pray. Father God, in a a simple 
but powerful passage like this in your word where we're somewhat exposed. Uh, we're seen for what we are. People who accommodate ourselves to the crowd around us rather than committing ourselves to you, to obeying you, and to living distinctive lives for you. Father God, we were struck here by this, this family, this community that found a way of being obedient and distinctive. And Lord, when we look at all that you've done for us and given us, Jesus gave his own blood, shed it on the cross for us. So great was his love and his desire to reconcile us to you. Father, you've given us your very spirit to indwell us, to to mark us out as your people in this world. Lord, we pray. We pray that even this small gathering of us who are here this evening might take it on our hearts to step out of the crowd, to say, I want to obey. I want to be different, holy for God in all the ways that he calls me to be. Lord, we pray that you'd do that work in us this evening. Just hearing the idea is not going to be enough for us. We'll need a work of your spirit to break into our lives, to shake us in our complacency, but to, but to show us that we can live differently for your glory. So come, Lord, and do all this for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.